0: Sports Talk New York with your hosts Mark Rosenman and AJ Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates, Send In The Clowns, The Phoenix Tube Company, CelebrityTrips.com, The Law Firm of Decalator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and Relish Restaurant of Kings Park. Here are your hosts Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who made his Major League debut on September 5, 1974. He proceeded to smash Major League pitching to the tune of a .419 batting average, .698 slugging percentage over his first 15 games. He followed that up with one of the greatest rookie seasons of all time, leading the Red Sox to the World Series, earning the Rookie of the Year, Most Valuable Player, Gold Love Awards for the 1975 season. He was the first player to achieve that trifecta, accomplishment matched only by Ichiro Suzuki of the Seattle Mariners in 2000. Third round pick of the New York Yankees in 1970 draft. He declined to sign, entered the University of Southern California on a football scholarship, also played baseball there. He was a teammate of future Pittsburgh Steelers star and pro football Hall of Famer Lynn Swan. Three years later, he would be selected by the Boston Red Sox franchise, the franchise that 29 years later would induct him into their Hall of Fame. It is a pleasure to welcome back to WLIE Sports Talk, nine time All Star, 1975 Rookie of the Year and Most Valuable Player, 1979 American League Batting Channel. Fred Lynn to WLIE Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Freddie.
1: Welcome. And boy, you did that in all in one breath. That was
0: very impressive. <laughs> well, I don't <laughs> have my co-host here, so I, had a, you know, I took a deep breath and was able to go right through it. <laughs> you, know, you know, Este is Father's Day, and I know that you spent time with your dad watching golf today. Can you tell us what impact your dad had on you for your love of sports?
1: Um, you know what? Uh, my dad uh, told me at, at a very young age that he wanted me to try uh, everything. And so we didn't really focus on any one uh, sport in particular, but he had me try them all. And I tried them at an early age. I grew up in the Southern California area, suburb of LA. So the weather was always good. So we're outdoors a lot, but it was, whether it was football season or basketball season or track season or baseball season, that's what Uh, you know, we did, and, you know, he introduced me to all those sports. Now, he was a great coach, um, and he was very uh, much in my corner all the time, but he wasn't a great athlete himself, but he taught me well. And so, you know, he was the guy that really got me started in all sports.
0: Very interesting. And, and, you know, it's so funny how everyone's fathers, there's so many great sports stories about them and how they fostered the, the love of sports. You know, June 18th was a pretty eventful date during your career. June 18th, 1975, your rookie year, Warm, humid night, Wednesday night. Final game of a three-game set with the Tigers. Ninth game of a 13-game road trip. Over the first eight games of the trip, the Red Sox were 6-2. and two. You guys held a game-and-a-half lead over the New York Yankees. First game of that series, your 20-game hitting streak was snapped. You came into the final game of that series with a 3.37 mark, 11 home runs, 40 RBIs. Detroit starting pitcher Joel Coleman retired Juan Beninquez to lead off the game. But then Burleson tripled, Yastrzemski doubled. Him home. You hit a two-run homer into the upper deck in right field. Rice singled. By the time the dust cleared in the top of the first, you guys had four runs and the route was on. By game's end, you would have three home runs, five hits, becoming the second rookie to drive in 10 or more runs in a game. In addition, you set a rookie record with 16 total bases. What do you remember most about that you know unforgettable night?
1: You know, you, you brought up a, a, a good subject. Actually, be, before that game, I had a 20-game hitting streak stop. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I was swinging about pretty well uh, up until that point. And, and Mickey Lolich was the guy who stopped it. And uh, he was just tough on me. I, I hadn't seen him before. And he, he just was bearing that fastball in on my hands and the slider away. And I, I just had a bad night. So the next day, um, I went to the ballpark early to take extra B.P., um, you know, in 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 Major League Baseball, you're only as good as your last game. And since I was, I think I was 0 for five in that game, I said, "Well, I, I got to get this thing straightened out." Um, and that's kind of you know the thinking. is just one game, but you know I, I was off off track because I had a 20 game hitting streak. So I took extra BP. Dwight Evans threw it to me, and I kind of locked in my swing. And I'd never seen most of the guys I was facing that year. And Joe Coleman uh, hung me a couple of uh, fork balls. I found out later, and those were the first two balls I hit out. But uh, yeah, the, the the thing that I remember most is that <clears throat> the last at bat was the ninth inning, and uh, we had a twelve run, twelve to one lead at that time. And in those days, um, when the starters came out of the game and you were on the road, especially if you're a veteran guy, um, you didn't stick around at the ballpark. You might have gone down to the local watering hole, have yourself <laughs> a, a, a brew and a burger. And uh, a couple of my teammates watched for my last at-bat from that place. And so, you know, I come into the clubhouse after the game, and half the team's already gone. <laughs> so it was kind of funny. Um, in, in fact, when I hit the last home run, I don't know how many fans were uh, said they were in attendance then, but they hit it in the upper deck in, in uh, Detroit Stadium, and there was no one there. The ball was just rattling around, boom, 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 boom. And there's no one in there to even got it to get it. So I, I don't know if uh, – A vendor got it later on, or a cleaning person, you know, after the game was over, picked it up. But (laughs) Uh, a lot of people missed that, and some of my teammates uh, missed it at the stadium, but they did see it in the local bar.
0: Interesting, since it is Father's Day, that third home run, ironically, hitting off of Tom Walker, who's the father of New York Mets second baseman Neil Walker. So a little Father's Day tie-in there as well. And, And you mentioned about that BP, and... Bill Freehand was quoted as saying, I was expected seeing some of our men doing extra hitting because we're down pretty good at the moment. I look out on the field and there's Fred Lynn. He goes 20 straight games with hits, he gets stopped, and he's out on the field taking extra batting practice. So you look at all the data that batters have available to themselves today, as well as video. Do you think that maybe some of them would be better served with good old fashioned BP as opposed to, you know, sitting there and analyzing what they've done against this pitcher and that pitcher? and maybe that some of the tried-and-true old ways might be better suited to them than watching all these video sessions and, and trying to break down their swings.
1: Careful now, careful. <laughs> <laughs> all those people that have all those statistical data, they're going to be <laughs> mad at you. Well, that's what I'm asking you. I, you know because you know what? To be honest with you, um, I probably, if, if that kind of stuff was available to me, and if I would say, you know, in a horrendous slump, a two for twenty or something like that. Obviously, something's mechanically wrong, and if I could see that on the video, um, that might help me out. But I'm a I'm a feel guy. I've always played sports by feel, um, intuition, and and when I, I I get the feeling, you know, as the ball's coming in, I'm I'm moving. A lot of things are moving in a baseball swing. You can't duplicate that on by, on video, but you can do it in batting practice. So the ball's moving around. And so I told Dwight, just throw it down the middle and let me move the ball around the ballpark. And that's what he did. And then I started to get the feel down, which I need to come into the game. Um, and that's, that's just a feeling. That's the way I hit. Um, that's the way I do most things athletically. And it's a feel thing, and you can't get that feeling unless you're in the batter's box, seeing live BP. Uh, I don't think there's any substitute for that. I don't think there ever has been. I don't think there ever will be.
0: Well, it's interesting. Another point that you brought up in that, and this is one of the things I think is going to hopefully change over the next ten to twelve years in the game, as, as the next generation of players come up. You said during that batting practice, wrote down the middle, and you would take it to all different fields. Players don't go opposite; they, they only can hit one way. And players, you know, the managers have spray charts and they shift them that way. And players can't go against a shift. Um, so that's something you can't find on video. When you say go to all fields, how did you develop the ability, because you, you, if you go back and look at your spray charts, it's to all fields. How do you develop to be able to hit to every part of the ballpark?
1: You know, uh, to be honest with you, when I was a kid, and <clears throat> when I grew up, if you wanted to be a home run hitter, you pulled the ball, which means you had to hit the ball in front of the plate. You know, you didn't let it get in on you like you do today. You hit it in front of your plate, the ballparks are bigger, the balls were, might be a little softer, and I'm not a big guy, so I had to hit it out in front and hit the ball towards right center or right field to get it out of the ballpark, because the ballparks were big. So um, when I got to Fenway Park, I never hit the ball to left field my life. I pulled everything. And then when I got to Fenway, I, I saw that wall there, <laughs> and I said, uh, hmm, I got to figure out a way to hit the ball <laughs> over there somehow. And now they call it, you know, staying inside the ball. Or you, there's all kinds of different terminology. Basically, I, I drag my hands through the zone first, and the barrel of the bat lags through. And even if it looks like a funky swing, the, the barrel of the bat's still going to hit the ball um, it, on the inner part of the uh, plate, and the ball's going to go to left field. And I started to figure that out, and I was one of the first guys of my size to be able to hit home runs to the opposite field.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: and I, I got really good at it. So now um, you can't put a shift on me because if I see you moving around, I'm just going to hit the ball the other way because I learned how to pitch, hit a pitch that was inside to left field, and I learned how to hit a pitch that was outside to left field. So now I have the option to do what I want but with a particular pitch. Um, Today's players are locked in, it seems like, as you suggested, so they're very defensible. If I see six guys in in right (laughs) field (laughs) and I'm not David Ortiz, I'm going to bunt or I'm going (laughs) to get that ball over to third base until they move back.
0: Right. And you don't see it, and you don't see it. It's it, it's infuriating at times when you're watching the game, and it, it, it's that simple. And if you're a smart player, you do that. But they're not paid to get bunt singles, so that well, that's, that's the right. problem. You know,
1: my dad and I, we, we watch baseball on Sundays. I go out to see him, and and they, they you know, keys would come up when he was still playing, and you know the guys, there's two guys, three guys in right field, and Dad a "Who?" Just want the ball to You know, This is the one exception to the rule <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because he gets paid to hit home runs and doubles, and he does that very well. And, and he would beat this ship by hitting the ball to the left center. But um, he's the only, he might be the only guy that I would say it's okay. The rest of them, you start pushing that ball down there. Just start moving those guys back to where they belong, and then they start moving the, the players over. Okay, and then do what you want to do.
0: Yeah, with Papi, obviously, if he bunts for a single, you still need a home run to bring him around to score. Yeah, that's so, right. I mean, that's right. going to clog up the bases. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, earlier this month, Cincinnati Reds' Scooter Jeanette became the first player in Major League to have four home runs, five hits, joined you in the 10-RBI game, and according to the Liar Sports Bureau, his 17 total bases also set a Cincinnati Reds' franchise record. His 10 RBIs tied the Reds' uh, club mark as well. You know, with the specialization of bullpens these days, do you find that 10 RBI game even more impressive now than back in, in your day when you had the guys that would go seven or eight, the same pitchers, maybe six, and then the bullpen guy would finish the remaining three? But when you have these lefty righty specialists, is that 10 RBI mark a little harder to obtain these days, do you feel? Well, I, I, I did hit it off of. Uh,
1: probably four, at least four pitchers right. um, that I could recall. But, yeah, to your point, it's much more difficult to lock into a starter because he's not in there very long. <laughs> I, mean, the, I mean, the philosophy of pitching has changed so dramatically since when I, I started playing professional baseball. I mean, guys, uh, they didn't want to strike you out. They, that takes too much energy. You know, they wanted you to hit the ball early in account. count, Preferably on the ground, so lots of guys do sinker slider kind of um, uh, repertoires. Where today in the ball game, I don't know, you, you, I don't know if there are ten guys that know how to throw a sinker. Um, so the guys are they're all power guys, and they throw as hard as they can for as long as they can, which isn't very long. And then these power guys come out of the pen. So if the hitter um, is very difficult to lock on, and you see relievers so infrequently anyway. Um, if you see him, you know, the same guy on one staff uh, two or three times a year, you know, that's a, a considerable amount. So it, it's difficult. But they still, if they're going to gas you, they still got to throw it over the plate. It's 17 inches across, and they still have to do that. So that's in your favor, and the strike zone is so small that you don't have much ground to cover anymore north-south. So as a hitter, Go ahead, bring on that gas because I know if it's above the waist, I don't even have to swing anymore. So (laughs) you you look down, and anything that's above your eyes, you you take. So, you know, there's, there's pluses and minuses to all that.
0: You know, sticking with the June 18th theme, two years later from that 10 RBI game, this time Fenway Park, you have a front row view. Uh, More accurately, a third base view into the Yankees' dugout for one of the more infamous Yankee moments. Bottom of the sixth inning, you're on first base. Jim Rice bloops uh, a shot to right field off of Mike Torres. It turns into a double. Um, Do you remember what happened and what you saw from your vantage point at third base after that double?
1: Well, I'm assuming you're talking about when Reggie Jackson was taken out of the game by Billy Martin? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. When, when I saw that unfolding, I'm thinking, we have these guys. I mean, they could, there's not, they're not going to recover from this. Then the, Obviously, they had words. I mean, you just don't do that um, to a major league player. You might say something when he comes into the dugout, but Reggie was not known for his defensive capabilities. I played with him. Um, you know, he's an offensive juggernaut, but defensively, you just said, okay, hit it to somebody else. Um, you know, sometimes he would, he might not have his head in there defensively. I'm not sure what happened that particular day, but uh, Billy, you know, liked to run the sh- a tight ship, and and so if you did something that he didn't like, he was going to let you know right away, and that's what got him hired and fired a whole bunch of times. <laughs> but it was pretty entertaining for me. Uh, I'm a pretty even keel guy. I'm thinking. We have this team now. They're going to be all all messed up after this. That was my initial thought.
0: It's so funny because, you know, as the players get to look at all the different data out there, looking back at your career because of the 10 RBI day, and then it so happened that the Reggie Jackson game was on the same day, I actually was taking a look. June 18th, your career. Do you realize that over the first eight years of your career, you were 15 for 25 on that date, 600 clip, So, I went a little deeper and I looked at at the splits for June and July over your career. And those were obviously the two best months for your career overall. Um, You know, are there reasons why certain players are better during certain parts of the year? And as a ball player, how do you, you know, really kind of keep your motivation for that long grind and try and stay pretty much average for the whole season in, in the same, you know, area as far as production?
1: I think there's a couple reasons for it. I didn't know that, by the way. I knew that I was pretty good uh, May through July. Um, you know, I, this, these are days where before you had physical training or any kind of weightlifting right. or any, those kinds of things. So, um, condition. I was I was a, I was a pretty well conditioned athlete, but I wasn't very strong. You know, not, not muscle wise. So I would I could break down. Um, that's when I was uh, at my peak probably strength-wise during the regular season. Plus we're just coming out of the cold weather. Uh, balls, you know, the, the weather's warming up. The balls are starting to fly a little bit better. Um, all those things uh, come to play. And then as the season wore on, you know, I, I, I would wear down as far as physical stature because I'm just not that big a guy until we started to lift weights you know, later in my career. But that's an interesting point. If I had known that, I I guess I could have retired after July. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh, I I went just a little bit further. You know, baseball reference is an amazing tool when when you have lots of time on your hands and you can look at stuff. Um, So much data is available to players and managers today. So, just for kicks, I went back to see how you did uh, against some of the pitches of your era. Some of the numbers were amazing. You had seven home runs against Dan Petrie, you were 12 for 21 against Bill Singer, Um, 393, six home runs, 16 RBIs against Burt Blylevin. 358 against Jack Morris, and, and here's, here's the one that just totally blew my mind. You were 0 for 14 with seven strikeouts against Jose Rio. So I'm wondering, back in the day before the computers and before matchups, did you keep a, a book or did you have a, a mental idea of, of how you did against certain pitchers?
1: Uh, you, every hitter knows um, <laughs> who you handle and who you don't. And believe me, the pitchers know too. They absolutely know because after my career was over – that's the only time I would hang with them. But you start to learn um, about guys and say, yeah, you know, if for whatever reason, you know, I couldn't get the ball where I wanted it against you or da-da-da-da. Or for me, I just saw the ball well against certain pitchers. Um, if they were right-handers and they came out from the side anywhere, I, I just picked it up better. Uh, but there were just certain guys that you saw the ball really well. And other guys, like Tanana, I never saw it against that guy. Um, I didn't know about Jose Rio, but um, there were just certain guys you just don't pick it up, and, and you can't hit what you can't see. And some guys disguise um, their delivery a little better, unlike today's pictures where there is no disguise. So see, they look like robots. They're all the same basically mechanical machine. But back then, man, you know, Louis, Louis no, no. T. Wow. I mean, where's the release point? It's yeah. all over the place. Um, so certain guys, they just had your number, and fortunately, hopefully there were more than on the other side than that side. But uh, there, were, there were other guys that I'd, I'd go up there and say, okay, all right, we're, we're going to battle here just to square one up. And then, you know, you, you think that um, the luck is really not going to work. You do square one up, and it goes right to somebody. So you know, it's um, one of those things, uh, I, I, mean, I knew that about Blylev. And I, probably kept him out of the Hall of Fame for a while.
0: (laughs) You know, it's interesting you mentioned Louis Tiant because I I don't know how anyone stands in a batter's box and and gets ready to hit off of a guy who turns his back and looks to center field before he releases the pitch. El Teante, the man of a a thousand, you know, nothing ever came the same way out of his hand. Anyone that got a hit off of him, I always marveled at. Uh, You know, your name comes up Every time a rookie has an MVP-type year, Mike Trout came in second to Triple Crown winner Miguel Cabrera in 2012. And now we have another rookie, sure to get consideration, obviously, for Rookie of the Year, and maybe MVP if he continues the season the way he has. And we're talking about Aaron Judge of the New York Yankees. Uh, Starting play this weekend, Judge was leading the league in average home runs, and he was one off the RBR lead. Going back to your rookie year, Obviously, there was a lot less media attention, but Boston is one of the toughest towns to play in. As that season progressed and those numbers were up there and the Red Sox were having that type of year, does pressure mount internally thinking like, wow, I'm, I'm on pace to maybe win the Rookie of the Year and the MVP? Do, does that creep into your mind at all? Those things
1: were never even discussed. Um, um, those are, are larger issues in today's game. Uh, back then, we were just concerned about um, winning. And beating the Yankees and Baltimore at, at that time, but um, nah, that we weren't. There was no benefit to winning those things other than you get a slap on the back. There was no monetary or any of the, those kind of considerations. I mean, that's not uh, why I played, and hopefully not why Aaron Judge is playing. But in today's world, they're going to bring those things up, and he's going to be compared to guys who've done it before, um, rightly so or not. But um, I never felt that. I, I never thought it, not even for a second, um, until after the year was over, and then things started coming my way, and I said, oh, look at that. <laughs> um, but prior to that, nah, we're just uh, – you, when you were a rookie back then, you're learning on the fly every day. I mean, he has uh, – the judge has the opportunity to look at video and all those things so – he won't be surprised as much when uh, he faces a pitcher for the first time like I did, and especially <laughs> back then. I mean, they were thrown at me more than they were thrown to the plate <laughs> a lot of times just to see what you're made out of. You know, they knock you down for a first month or two, and and they see how you react to that, and then they figure out well, that's not a good way to go. So, all right, we're going to buzz them with fastballs. Oh, we can hit that. Well, then now we're going to go to the breaker balls and see if we can hit that. And if there is – some sort of deficiency in somebody's swing or a hole, the league will find it, and then it spreads like wildfire, especially today's game, I'm sure. Um, But I've only seen Judge a handful of times, and for a big man, he's uh, well-balanced. I I didn't see him get fooled, but they keep pitching in the same spot, which is a way, which when you're, I don't know how tall he is, 6'7", you can cover to the other batter's box if you want with your swing so anything <laughs> two or three inches outside is right in his wheelhouse so um i think uh it's time for the boys on the mound to make some sort of adjust adjustment to mr judge here because he's handling everything that's away from him that i've seen i've only seen like say maybe five or six of bats and they're all trying to pound him away and that's not working
0: you mentioned that you know it was just a piece of hardware. And if the story is correct, that piece of hardware actually has your name spelt wrong on it as well on the MVP <laughs> trophy, right? <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, you know, it, it it's great, you know, talking to you and talking about that magical year because it brings back memories of a great Yankee Red Sox rivalry. Both teams have retooled with some young exciting players so the rivalry is still alive. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Happy Father's Day. Enjoy the rest of the evening with your dad. We appreciate you taking the time out to talk with us tonight.
1: You know, it's always a pleasure to speak with somebody that really knows their stuff and is well prepared. So I sit down, young man.
0: You well. <laughs> I I remember your rookie year, and, <laughs> and and I wasn't that young then. So, but I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, Fred. Thanks a lot. You got it. The 1975 MVP and Rookie of the Year, the great Fred Lynn. Lind-